believe. Get, get your eyes off the land and the giants and just believe. Get your eyes off of your insecurities and your inabilities and just believe. Just have faith in God. Just trust Him. Just walk with your head up and your shoulders back and trust God because He promised you and He will bring it to pass. Matthew 21, 22, in all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. If ye shall have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, remove from yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible. Just believe. No matter what it looks like around, just believe. Nothing shall be impossible to you. We got enough scripture backing us up, telling us if we'll just look to Jesus, if we'll just put our faith in him, if we'll just trust him, his promises are sure and steadfast. They are yea and amen. If that scholarship, you can always go home and work in your daddy's business. I'm here to tell you today, don't listen to that voice. That voice is a liar. That voice is untrue. Once you've been touched by the power of God, once you've heard his calling, once your heart has been stirred with his burden, once you've caught sight of his vision, there is no going back to an average life. Incredibles cannot be average. You see, what Peter learned that day is once you've encountered Jesus, you can't go back to the life you've lived before. It'll never again be business as usual. You'll never be able to return to the things that you used to do. You will never be able to revive previous plans and dreams. The hand of God has touched you, and you will never be the same. to know somebody here today God has heard every single prayer he knows what you've been praying he knows what you've been hoping for he knows what you've been believing for he knows and he wants you to know today that this attack you're under is not just an ordinary storm it's a supernatural storm sent intended to, to knock you off course and to push you down and to get you discouraged and tell you that God really didn't call you and God really didn't have his hand on you and God really doesn't have a future for you but the devil is a liar the devil has no authority that fear has no authority over you fear hath torment but perfect love casts out all fear and I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would experience the liberty and freedom that can only come from the love of God and the power of the Holy Ghost be set free today I do know there are moments in my life when he tries to step in, when the enemy tries to step in and discourage me and to bring fear and torment me. But I've got to realize in those moments, I have power over the enemy. Jesus has given me power. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I don't know what fear you may be facing right now at the attack of Satan in your life. But I want to tell you, you do not have to be afraid. You don't have to be discouraged. You have the power. You have the authority. You can have victory in Jesus' name. It isn't time to let down, to draw back, to do less, to preach easier. It is time to take the gospel, the only saving gospel, to a lost world. I want to tell you something. 
They don't want less than truth. They've heard all the other stuff. They've been exposed to the watered down and the milk toast gospel. It's time for one God, Jesus' name, apostolic, tongue-talking, Holy Ghost preachers and singers and missionaries and teachers to make a difference. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. Welcome to our 2021 Urshan Pulpit Conference. We're so excited that you are here. Why don't you stand together? Amen. We're going to enter into a time of worship in just a moment. Thank you so much for being a part of this meeting. We are excited at what's going to take place tonight, tomorrow during the day on the Urshan campus, and then back here again tomorrow night at 7. October 14, 1987, the entire nation was glued to the news reports, listening, watching, and waiting for updates on the rescuers' progress as they fought rock, equipment failure, and time to rescue 18-month-old Jessica McClure from a well shaft in Midland, Texas. Left alone for just a few minutes in her aunt's backyard on a bright October day, the little girl had playfully dangled her feet over an innocent-appearing eight-inch opening in the ground. And when she tried to stand up, she fell into the darkness. With one leg up and the other leg down, Jessica was wedged in the narrow shaft above the well's water, but 22 feet below the ground. Rescuers drilled a 29-foot vertical shaft parallel to the well and then bored a five-foot-long horizontal tunnel through solid rock to reach her. It took far more time than any had anticipated, 58 hours. Medical personnel grew increasingly alarmed and warned that dehydration and shock were becoming greater dangers than the entrapment itself. And finally, rescuers reached little Jessica but they could not pull her out. The way her body was wedged in the shaft foiled their efforts, and the health technicians conferred with one another and tried to check the little girl's vital signs one more time and then gave these awful orders. Pull hard. She does not have more time. You may have to break her to save her. And when the rescuers pulled that last time, Jessica came free without additional injury. Tonight, God so desires that salvation of those in this world who are lost, that he will do whatever must be done to pull people from sin to the safety of salvation. God knows that no one's hours on this earth are unlimited, and if need be, he is willing to break us in order to save us. So as preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been commissioned to declare the word of God to those who are lost, hurting, bound, and trapped by sin. And as rescuers armed with life-giving truth, we must not be afraid nor ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Sometimes God's word will sting 
as it confronts people in their sinful state, trapped by a narrow shaft of sin into which they have fallen. But in order for them to be free and delivered and able to experience what it means to truly be alive, someone must preach with passion and fervor and fire and anointing and declare that Jesus Christ is the only way to freedom and deliverance. As, as I've heard Brother Wayne Huntley say before, as only he can. We are preachers who stand behind a pulpit. And our responsibility is to pull people out of the pit. Ours is not a responsibility that can be taken lightly. We cannot just sit idly by as people pass us on their way to an eternal destination where there is no hope, separated from the presence of the Lord. The lost of the world are depending on those who've been filled with the Holy Ghost to carry this gospel message into all the world, beginning in the world in which we, each of us, individually live. Jesus said, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in my name among all nations. He said, go you into all the world and preach the gospel. God has chosen preaching the declaration of his word to save them that believe. Some will never hear truth unless they hear a preacher. Some will never know God's love unless they hear a preacher. Some will never experience salvation unless they hear hope declared by a preacher that's why we as preachers we partner with the Holy Ghost to rescue souls from the narrow shafts of sin and just as the medical experts told the rescuers as they monitored baby Jessica approaching what could have been her final few breaths pull hard she doesn't have much more time and today is the day we must pull harder than ever we must preach with boldness more than ever we must preach without fear we must preach with anointing and authority we must preach with confidence and clarity we must preach with power and purpose this is the call of the spirit in these last days and I want to do my part in declaring the hope that is found only in Jesus I wonder right now if you would lift your hands with me you lift your voice and lift your heart and beseech the Lord Lord come Come fill this place tonight. Speak clearly to us through your word. We desire your presence. We desire your power. We desire your glory to fill this place. Put your hands together right now and let's magnify the Lord together for he is worthy. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught 
whether by word or our epistle. I wonder if you join me in prayer tonight. God, I pray right now that you would give us new ears and new eyes and hungry hearts that when we hear the word that we've heard so many times before it would somehow become meaningful and important and urgent to us once again god we want to be changed by you tonight we submit to you we submit to your word and we desire more of you in jesus name in jesus name you may be seated paul writes to the thessalonian church to dispel a false idea that's been circulating. That is that the day of the Lord has already come. And in doing so, he writes prophetically of the last days to this persecuted church. He talks of the falling of the, away, the sun of perdition and the coming glory of Christ. He reminds them of what he already taught them, that no man should deceive them because the day of the Lord will not come until there be a great falling away and that sun of perdition be revealed. So he contrasts the perishing unbeliever with those at Thessalonica who are steadfast in their faith. They, those who are perishing, received not the love, the agapen of the truth that they might be saved. They refused to love the truth that would have saved them. So what is the significance for this last day's end of times church that's sitting in this room? There are many gospels that are competing today for your proclamation. If you're a traditionalist, then there is a gospel for you. If you're an anti-traditionalist, there is a reformed gospel for you. If you love a cultural ideology, there's a gospel that goes with that. And if you don't like that theology, then there's a counter theology for you. At the push of buttons, in one foul Google search, in a moment of crisis, someone is waiting with enticing words to convince you that their version of the gospel is right. And here's the scary thing. If you don't love the truth, you will believe them just because you want to. You may know, you may know, but knowing is never enough. If you don't love the truth, all of it, your ministry, your calling, your identity in Christ, it all has a price tag and you would be surprised and how few pieces of silver you might sell your savior for. There's another gospel that's competing today for your proclamation. And the enemy is desiring that you would be just another YouTube clip of somebody in Pentecost who used to be another tragedy, another sad story. There is no passive, half-hearted pursuit of God that will lead you to salvation. You've got to love the truth. Amen. If you don't love it, you might believe it for a minute, but you won't believe it for very long because God will send you a strong delusion. God is not looking for any pew sitters. He's not looking for another half-hearted preacher. God's not concerned with a passive Christian. He doesn't want that. He doesn't need that. He's got enough of that. But somebody 
I'm going to get a little emotional about it. I'm going to put a ring on it. I'm not just going to flirt with it, but I'm going to fall all the way in love. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Love the truth. Love, not optional. Leave the land of your fathers and go. Sell all that you have for the treasure in the field. Take heed to yourself and take heed to your doctrine. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught. Love truth. Love not being optional. Love Jesus. Love the message of the cross. Love the word of God. All of it. Not just in part. You better love the apostles' doctrine. If you don't love it, you're not going to have it for very long. Hallelujah, Jesus. Help us today. I was reflecting on the modern Pentecostal movement, our recent history, and the miracle of the modern Pentecostal movement was not that after nearly two millennium, God said something new. But the miracle was that people who were hungry were able to see past their traditions. They were able to open their eyes and just read and obey the word of God. That's the miracle. You can love the lost, and you can love the church, and you can love people, but at the foundation of who you are, at the very core of your being, at the basis of who you are, before you're a minister, before anything else, there must be an agape kind of love for the gospel. <laughs> Hallelujah. I wonder if we could stand and pray. God, give us a love for the gospel. There's other things that are competing for our love and affection. We could believe something else if we don't love this. God, fill us with a love for truth. We don't want to be casually acquainted with it. But God, we've got to lay our lives down for it. In Jesus' name. What a word. Amen. I want to love the truth. I want to have a love for the truth. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. More than anything, we need that. It's the truth that will set us free. Amen. You remain standing. Dr. Brent Coltharp, along with his wife, Rachel, and their four children, James, Reagan, Lincoln, Grant, Serve as pastor of First Apostolic Church of Aurora, just west of Chicago. Dr. Coltharp also serves the Illinois District, the United Pentecostal Church, as district superintendent. And on November 9th, 2018, Dr. Coltharp was elected to serve as president of Urshan College and Urshan Graduate School of Theology. So I wonder if tonight if you'd welcome with me Brother Coltharp as he comes to preach the word of the Lord to us tonight. Amen. God bless him. Oh, let's give the Lord praise tonight. Isn't he good? Hallelujah. Jesus, we worship you. We are so thankful for your word tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. What a powerful word from the Lord from Sister Bullinger. 
Amen. Every time I hear her preach the word of the Lord, she does such an outstanding job. How many have made up your mind? You love the truth. You bought it. It's not for sale. Amen. Every part of your being. Amen. Thank you for coming to the pulpit conference tonight. So thankful for all those who are part of pulling this off. The Jones, the McClintock Christian Ministry Program. And for all of you coming to support preaching. Amen. And the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Aren't you thankful that you can come with other brothers and sisters? Amen. Who have that same heartbeat, same commitment to the mission of God, want to see it go forward. Amen. That's why Urshan exists. We believe that God wants us to develop servant leaders in the church and to the world to make a difference. Amen. Amen. Would you join me in prayer as we go into the word of the Lord tonight? Just let's ask the Lord to have his way the remainder of this service. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to come together to be here with the wonderful students here of Urshan and all those who have come to attend this conference. Lord, we know your word is already anointed. It's your word. God, I pray that you'd anoint me to preach your word, that we'd have ears, hearts to receive your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It's to order our steps. I pray that you'd help me to share that burden tonight in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. God bless you. You may be seated. Israel was brought out of Egypt by the mighty hand of the one true God. Amen. No doubt was left about who the one true God was. Plagues, parting seas. They came out baptized into the cloud, into the sea, informing the entire world that there is no king and there is no God like Yahweh. He, as a king of this new nation, had gone in, a family of 70 came out of a nation, began to establish his nation, the nation of Israel. He organized it according to his specific desired structure. And so over it was a prophet leader named Moses. And eventually there were prophets and judges, high priests. He had a military commander named Joshua. And then, of course, it was broken down in the 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, rulers of the thousands and hundreds, fifties and tens. And so they come out and begin to structure them. The law is given on Sinai, developing them into a nation that would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that would represent him and reflect his glory throughout the world. Of course, there's nothing more exciting than when they begin to possess the land of Jericho after 40 years in the wilderness and they begin to possess the promises of God. It's always exciting to possess the promises of God. Beginning with possessing the land, a day of truly of shock and awe as the walls fall. And Israel is handed an incredible victory. And they begin to inhabit homes that they did not build. And pull fruit from vineyards they did not plant. And they begin to grow and expand and to possess the land. They became the envy of the ancient world at that time. The, this people that had God that went before them and rested with them. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Who brought manna from the heavens, bread from the heavens and quail. Brought water out of rocks, sustained his people. What a God and what a relationship he had with his people. They would grow and become the envy and the golden years. But the question is... With God bringing them out and delivering them in such a powerful, dynamic way. With them taking a land that, that had walls and cities and armies. And yet, 
with the power of God many times without drawing the sword. Walls falling flat. Victories came. How, how did they eventually backslide and go into captivity and lose it all? Go back into the captivity just like he had brought them from. The first time they had sort of chosen to go there through Joseph and it was a plane of provision. But the second time that they would go into exile, it was because of idolatry. Because they had lost their way. They had lost their love for the things of God. How does it happen that you can be such a great height with God as your king and yet it could crash to where nothing would be left? I mean... I think it goes back, and, and this, of course, is my theory, is 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter. The Bible talks about the elders of Israel are gathered together, and, and they bring Samuel. In verse 5, it says, look, you're old. <laughs> That's probably not the best way to start a conversation right there. Your sons do not walk in your ways. And notice this. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. He said, they said, we... We just sort of want to be like everybody else. Make us a king to judge us like all of the other nations. Of course, this thing's displeased Samuel. Verse 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, heed to their voice, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. You see, Samuel was not king. He, he was a prophet. And, and God was king. He began to let them know. That they're rejecting me. He said, but forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king that will reign over them. Verse 18 of 1 Samuel 8 says it like this. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. He says, this is what you're wanting. You're wanting to be like everybody else. You're wanting to be like the rest of the world. You're wanting to go out from under my covering, under my umbrella, my covenant, and be like the rest of the world. You're going to be able to do that. But I want you to know that when you get what you wanted, there is going to come a day where you're going to weep and cry because of it. I won't hear you in that day. I wonder, what was it about the surrounding nations that made Israel say, we want to be like them? What was it? I mean, kings in the ancient world often had limitless power and authority. They were believed to have been lowered from the gods, sort of the way to structure the earth, vice regent for the divine ruler. And when you look at it, what was it when they saw the, the, the nations around them that made them want to be like that? You see, Samuel was not their king. He was a prophet. And prophets, in stark contrast with kings, do not speak their own words and build their own kingdom. Prophets speak the word of the Lord and they build his kingdom. There is a vast difference. Vast difference. In fact, judges, this is what Gideon said in verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my sons rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. There was this understanding that when they were brought out, they were brought out by the mighty hand of God. And Pharaoh was not their king, but Yahweh was their king. He was their Lord. Everybody else filled and fulfilled roles, but he was king. And he says, here's what's going to happen when you go the way of the world and you go after what they have. He says, he's going to take your sons. He's going to take the next generation. He's going to take your sons and they're going to be his 
charioteers and horsemen, runners and soldiers. He's going to use them to plow his gardens and grounds and to reap his harvest. They, they will make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He says, your daughters, they'll take them and they'll be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He says, he's going to take your land. He's going to take all of these things. And there is going to come a day when you're going to cry out because you got what you went after. You became like the world. Wow. And it happened. It happened. Of course, Saul, David, Solomon, the fourth king, Rehoboam, the kingdom is divided. They, they come to him just like it said. They're talking about how difficult it had been and how hard Solomon had been. And here's what Rehoboam said. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will do it with scourges. It, it got to the place that they began to cry out because the bondage, because of the, the weight of the yoke. They got a king to judge them. Notice that. They said, we want a king like the other nations to judge us and to fight our battles. Really? How deceived do you have to be to say to the Yahweh that brought you out and parted the seas and parted the river and, and did all of these to say, no, 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 we would rather they fight our battles. How deceived do you have to be? But when you start wanting to be like the world, you will be deceived as was mentioned today. And so it happened. The monarchy was a travesty in Israel. I know we like to talk about David. We like to do everything David did, right? Sing like he did, play like he did, dance like he did. Uh, and there's some bright spots and some, some, some positive things, but it, it was horrific if you really look at, at the kings because that was never God's plan. God's plan was that he was the king. And so it's a travesty, and eventually there's idolatry, and, and Israel, northern kingdoms would go in the 700, 722, 586. Uh, Jerusalem would be conquered, and the walls would come down, and the temple would be destroyed. And the nation that had been so great and had built such an edifice to God, it would lay there in ruins. And they would go, and they wouldn't know how to worship because everything with the covenant was tied to land, it's tied to the tabernacle. They would hang their hearts on the wall. How can we do this in a strange land? We don't know what to do. Wow. How do you far that, fall that far? When you walk away and you see the tabernacle in ruins. Fall, desire. Centuries later, in the New Testament, the vision that was cast by the Lord by Yahweh in Genesis 3 would come to pass. The seed of the woman would overcome death in the grave. He would triumph openly, disarming and making a public spectacle of principalities and powers. And God would deliver a new people, a, a nation that was going to be a kingdom, a priest as well. A holy nation. A king. They would fulfill where Israel had fallen short. It would be the bride of Christ without spot or wrinkle or in any such thing. And man, what a delivering power that was when we came through the sea and through the cloud. When we were born again of water and of the spirit. Is there anybody that... That's still thankful for that day when you are baptized in the only name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. When you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues for that very first initial time. I want you to know I'm so thankful that he is a deliverer. He is a savior. This was what 
the Lord would do. And, and, and the transformation is evident as you see the church begin to become this holy nation set apart to the Lord. God who had brought them out and, and those who had once denied Jesus would then preach his word without fear or favor would stand boldly and preach the word of God. And in Acts 2, 120 in an upper room, and then 3,000, Acts 4, 5,000, and then daily are added to the church, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. You talk about a kingdom expansion. The church is the kingdom that Israel would never get up to be. The church is the one that's going to be eternally with him. The bride of Christ brought out by the spirit of God. Baptized in his name. His blood applied. Circumcised with the circumcision without hands. The church of the living God. And, and expanded. It fulfilled Acts 1 and 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And the Apostle Paul, who had played such a major role in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth with his three missionary journeys between Acts 12 and 28. He concludes his life at Rome. His life would come to an end. And Acts would end with Luke recording these words. Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house. He received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. Here's how Paul, how Acts, after it's fulfilled, how Luke lets you know that what they set out to do by the acts of the Spirit has come to pass. And I want you to know when it's done, when we leave Paul, he's preaching the gospel. He's teaching the doctrine because he has full confidence. Full confidence in it. You see, Luke is stating that Paul would give his life to fulfilling the Great Commission to go, to make disciples, to preach the gospel, to teach the doctrine, to teach them to observe all things that he had been commanded and that Paul would give his life to doing so. And he said that he did this with, and I emphasize, all confidence. Paul openly and boldly with all confidence stood strong on the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm going to give my entire life to preaching the gospel and teaching the doctrine. I have full confidence in it. And in his letter to the Romans, he shares why. Romans 1, 15. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, because this is where I, what I do everywhere I go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Wow. He says, I have full confidence in this. He says, I preach it, I teach it with all confidence. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone but who believes. You see, Paul was in there in Rome and he was not intimidated by the philosophies and the religions of Rome because he knew, he knew what would work. He knew what the answer was and that was to preach the gospel and teach the doctrine. I preach the gospel and I teach the doctrine. Why? Because this is what is the power of God. 
I'm here to talk about the power of God tonight. And I want you to know what it is. It's when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's when we teach the apostolic doctrine. You don't get any more powerful than when you open up the word of God and you begin to proclaim what thus saith the word. It's not my words. It's his words. I'm not the king. He's the king. I'm here to preach his word, to build his kingdom. But there is power in the word of God. Paul would be there in Athens, Mars Hill, and he would be provoked when he saw that the city was given over to all kinds of idols. And you know what he did? When there, everywhere he looked, there was idolatry. Here's what he did. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because when Paul preached, he preached Christ and him crucified and the resurrection and the gospel. When they heard of it, there's some that walked away. There were some that believed. But he says, this is what I do. Whether I'm in Greece, whether I'm in Rome, wherever I go, I preach the gospel because it's the power of God. There's not power in any other way. Any other way power, the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what works. This power, this dunamis. Uh, Paul, Paul didn't have dynamite in his mind. That, that wouldn't be invented for like 1,800 years more. <laughs> and anyway, there's a lot of things that can blow up things into pieces in our world. But the power he's talking about is not the power to take whole things and blow them up. No, 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 no. He's talking about the power that can do something much bigger than that. There's a lot of power out there that can blow things up. But he says the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ can take all kind of pieces and make them whole again. Now that is power. You can have your destructive power all that you want. But when you start preaching the gospel, when you start teaching the doctrine, pieces start coming together again. Ezekiel, here's what I want you to do. Proclaim the word of God and bone by bone, sinew and muscle, life begins to come. Why? Because because it is the power of God when we preach the gospel. Hallelujah. It takes things that are broken and makes them whole. It takes those who are dead in their trespasses and sin and makes them alive again. It makes them new creatures in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things become new. It is the power of God to salvation. The power of God to salvation. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God. Not ashamed. Comfortable with it. I'm confident, fully confident in it. Why? Because it works. This is God's power. This is how it works. Paul would say to the Corinthians, where's the wise? 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached. It pleased God through the message preached to save those who believe. The Jews, they want a sign. The Greeks are after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We know what they want, 
but we don't give them what they want. Because there's no power in what they want. Our confidence is in the gospel. To Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ. The power of God and the wisdom of God. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. That no flesh should glory in his presence. He would go on to say. Paul is saying, yes, the Jews, they want a sign. The Greeks want, uh, they, they, they seek after wisdom. And, and they think this is foolishness. And there's a, a scandal and a stumbling block for those of the Jews. But he says, we continue to preach. And why do we continue to preach? Why do I give my ministry to preaching? Why? At the end of my life, the last things I'm doing is preaching and teaching. Why? Because it is the only power of God. It is the power of God to salvation. And listen, when the church preached, it happened. It worked. People repented of their sins. They were baptized in his name. They were filled with his spirit. The churches began to grow. 120 and 3,000 and 5,000 and daily. It worked. The church grew to the ends of the earth. They filled cities with their doctrine. That's what they did. But if we're not careful, we will follow a bad example. Paul said also in 1 Corinthians 10, Talking about Israel with most of them, God was not well pleased. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They became our examples to the intent that we should no longer lust or epithumia, desire after evil things as they desired. The tragedy that took place with Israel time and time again is because instead of embracing God's word, God's law, and God's ways, they said, no, we think we want to be like them. We think we want to be like them over there. And they pursued other things than the Lordship of Christ. Because the Lordship of Christ is always a dividing point. There will be many that will say, Lord, Lord, have we not? But the Lordship, submission, walking with Him. Will Mancini has been at coaching, coaching pastors and serving as a church consultant for 20 years. And I, I read him uh, a few months ago, sharing some concerns that he's observed after two decades. <laughs> he said he, he got to thinking that if people are going to be saved, then we just need to get good at evangelism. And he said what he started noticing in churches is the wheel of ministry is being pulled hard, hard to the ditch of human effort. Like a car with a bad tire is what he said. Thousands of churches, he said, have believed that, that the, the, the gospel is just not enough. He says they're falling to one of four P's. The first one is place. They think the building or the location or the facility and all of that is what will build the church. Or, or the personality of the leader, that, that the preacher or the leader would just have that right personality, that charismatic personality. Or the programs, the various activities of the church. If we can get the right programs, if we can meet everybody's desires, what everybody wants in a consumer age. Or people. And he says they're... Under the idea that if we can be relevant in all of these areas, 
We can attract people to church and then we can build the church. And this is what he said. This is not an apostolic. He said, relevance is always in the eye of the consumer. And the consumer's eye always wonders. You see, consumers, once they have that desire met, then they start looking for something else. And in the church, it means that the church is reacting to our world. Because just like it did in Samuel's day, people start looking around and saying, why can't we be like them? And why can't we be like them? And why can't we do it like that? He says it's embodied in the things we give. We do to give people what they want. Or what they think they want. Or what we would want if we were in their shoes. And if we do all of that, eventually they'll say, you know what, by the way, we also want Jesus. So here's some of the list of the things he compiled of things that churches do to build the church, get people in. Amazing visual brand and savvy social media. A stellar communicator, preacher or teacher, whichever term you want to use. A next step class to your dream team and volunteer corps. The perfect mix of demographics. Baristas serving sustainable coffee. Intellectual thought-provoking services. Uber cool kids ministry that your children can't wait to attend. VIP parking with gifts for guests. Heart-pumping opening worship with a face-melting band. Magnificent choir backed by an orchestra of virtuosos. Prime piece of real estate in the community. Topical preaching. Expository preaching. Suit and tie preacher. Skinny jeans preacher. Just enough pop culture references in the sermon. Advanced lighting. Visible tattoos. Vintage liturgy. Staff with advanced degrees, staff with no degrees, staff with a past. Youth sports leagues, art displayed on every wall. And he goes through the list. And there's nothing wrong with a lot of these things except they do not have the power of God. I'm a pastor. I believe I'm to be a good steward. I believe I should do everything I can with all these things to, to be the best we can. People, programs, all of it. I, I sweat over those things like every other pastor. However, the key word is rely on these things. The key word is thinking that some of these things are going to see somebody born again. That some of these things are going to bring somebody into the church. And can I tell you, it's not working. 62% of all churches in America are having no growth or, or in decline, according to the U.S. Religious Landscape Study. 65, more than 30% of churchgoers say they have never felt God's presence during a service. They might have been touched emotionally. They might have had a good program, but never felt the presence of God. More than 2 million people have left the American church every year for the last seven years. Between 2006 and 2018, the percentage of the U.S. population calling them Christians has decreased from 83% to 70%. One third of evangelicals say they attend church out of obligation. 50% of those in church last Sunday cannot remember a single spiritual insight. 
23% of the American adult population is now religiously unaffiliated or categorized as nuns. The nuns are now the second largest religious group in the United States. 58% of Americans express little or no confidence in religion. A place where Christianity exploded and, and we talk about the move of God throughout our nation. But what is happening is we're walking away and we're looking back and we're seeing that smoke that's coming from the tabernacle. Because somehow we got so focused on trying to persuade people and they get to talk to people and they get what they wanted and what they desired that we started relying on other things beside the gospel. Have it all. Do the best that you can. But what you better rely on is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you want the power of God, there's only one way it comes. And it comes when a preacher gets up and starts to proclaim, Live and he loved me. Die. He saved me, buried, he carried my sins far away, rising, he justified, freed me forever. One day he's coming back and it's going to be a glorious day. This is the gospel. This is the love of God. This is the power of God. If we want power in our services, we won't get it any other way outside of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we want a move of God in our services, it doesn't come any other way outside of preaching the gospel. Mancini believes that a lot of Sunday creativity, from eye-popping props to outlandish stunts, is driven by an unhealthy bravado masking shame in the gospel. That Christians have become ashamed of the gospel. They've lost confidence in the gospel. It's just not enough. So we need to help it out. How do we help out the gospel? And it becomes about our power and our might rather than his might and his power. Nothing you can offer can transform somebody's life. Now you can have power to blow things up. But the power to put the pieces back together again... You better preach Christ and Him crucified. You better start talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. You better start lifting Him up, talking about Him, talking about what He has done. Why? Because there's not a program that can put somebody's life back together again. And it's time for the church to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. We might do a lot of things, but we want you to know what's the primary what's more important and that's the power of Jesus Christ in fact Bill Hull says this the gospel you preach determines the disciples you make you start preaching a gospel of entertainment to consumers and what you're going to do is you're going to make consumers because what gospel you preach are the disciples that you're going to make. If it's all about the show, if it's all about the program, 
People will come for programs and people will come for a show. But if it's about that we were lost, dead in trespasses and sins, without hope, without Christ, without God, aliens, and then in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, he came to go to a cross. That has the power to take broken pieces and put them back together again. I, I, I did an internship, counseling internship years ago. I would come home so frustrated. I'd come home and talk to Rachel. And, and I, I would say, I feel like I'm putting band-aids on things. It, it's not that they're not good interventions. And it's not that they're we're, we're not good things to help people. The problem was, is that everywhere we go, there we are. We are not changed. And the only way we truly get transformed is by the renewing of our mind. And the only way people's minds get transformed and renewed is when a preacher begins to preach and teach the Word of God. And it begins to transform their thinking. And that heals marriages. That all of a sudden now we can get good skills and things that will help us with interpersonal relationships and a lot of other things. But if we start without the gospel... We try to get one piece attached and it falls off when we move to the next piece. And can I tell you, the church has nothing to offer the world in the way of relevance anyway. Because the world can always find something, a more pleasing alternative somewhere else. And you will kill yourself trying to please people and to please this world. You will never accomplish it. The moment you get there, enjoy that Sunday because next week there's going to be a desire for something different and something more. But if people can have the gospel preached to them, if their hearts can be transformed by the gospel, all of a sudden. Amen. They're going to be faithful. They're going to be disciples, students, followers of Jesus Christ. And so we preach Christ and Him crucified. Because after all, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on Him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on Him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How are we going to be saved? It's not just repentance. It's not just Acts 2.38. In fact, salvation goes beyond just repentance of sins and, and being born again initially. Uh, the Word of God and salvation is a work and sanctification continues to work in our lives. And so as a preaching Word and the teaching of the Word continues, we continue to grow in the image, the stature, the fullness of Christ. God's not done with us. It still happens through His Word. And so we preach the Word. It's an in-season, out-of-season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering. Even in Acts 6, when they were having some issues in the church, the Hellenistic widows and the Hebrew widows, the apostles understood one thing. We need to address this problem. It's okay to have good structure in a church and good leadership. It's essential, in fact. We have to have it. God designed it that way. We need to figure out what we're going to do this. We need to find men and qualified men who are anointed, who have good a testimony. We need to, uh, then, then to put them in that ministry. But the, they understood one thing we cannot get away from. We have to give ourselves daily to prayer and the ministry of the Word. 
to where they said they filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. Would you stand with me tonight? I want somebody to know that if you want a move of God in your service, open up that Bible and start preaching the Word of God. You want transformation? Start preaching and teaching the Word of God. It works. Paul said, I've got all the confidence in that. I'm not ashamed of that. Everywhere I go, this is what I do. I preach Christ and Him crucified. I know there's going to be some that says, you know what, we're, we're seeking after this wisdom and we have different desires, but I preach Christ because it's the power of God. So if God chose the message preached, if God chose that, let me ask you this question, what are you choosing? If the apostles gave themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, what are we giving ourselves to? Because you realize that I don't want the first apostolic church of a war where I'm at. I don't ever want to walk away and look in the rearview mirror and see a place where the glory of the Lord was so powerful. But now it's just become a consumeristic social event. And it's in ruins. Because just like others before, said, you know what, I think I want to be like that and like that and like that. Maybe, maybe even good ideas, but I got away from the power of God. Pharmacist Robert Courtney made $19 million as a pharmacist. It's pretty good. Tragically, it was from fraud. What he would do is he would take medications for cancer patients and he would dilute them in order to make a profit he would add things to them, water them down where he could make a profit over a period of nine years he diluted an estimated 98,000 prescriptions affected over 4,000 patients at least 17 cancer patients died after receiving diluted forms of chemotherapy, 17 he was entrusted with the noble vocation of handing out life-saving medication. But for other desires, he diluted it. He watered it down where he could make money. The Word says that preach without fear or favor. Because when it's all said and done, the blood of souls can't be on my hands. So you place your confidence in whatever you want to place your confidence in. But you're looking at one preacher right here. And I want you to know I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to preach it every Sunday because it's the power of God to salvation. I don't want to dilute it. I don't want to water it down because the souls of men and women are at stake. They need to hear the whole counsel of God. Oh, would you reach out to Him? Would you receive that word? Would you make that commitment tonight? God, we are a congregation 
tonight that are committed to your gospel. The power of God. Thank you, President Calthorpe, for that powerful, wonderful message. The power's in the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. Here at Urshan College and Urshan Graduate School, we've placed high value on the preaching of God's Word. We believe in the authority, the necessity, and the power of preaching. We know that God chose the ministry of preaching to save them that believe. And the Urshan Pulpit Award is an annual award, award that's been created to honor apostolic preachers who've made a profound impact on the oneness apostolic church through their commitment to biblical truth communicated through apostolic preaching. This year, in an easy choice, we are giving the Urshan Pulpit Award to two outstanding preachers of the gospel who made an incredible impact on the apostolic church throughout the 20th century. Tonight, we present the 2021 Urshan Pulpit Award to Reverend Andrew Urshan and Reverend Nathaniel A. Urshan. Let me tell you just a little bit about these two towering giants of the apostolic truth. Andrew Urshan was born in May of 1884 in what was then called Persia. He was born about 400 miles northwest of Mount Ararat. As an 18-year-old, he came to the United States in 1901 and settled in Yonkers, New York. He felt a call to ministry in 1904 and in 1906 began working among the Assyrian people, his own people, in Chicago with marked success. Two years later, 1908, there was a remarkable outpouring of the Holy Ghost among the young people that gathered at the Moody Church in Chicago. A great hunger seized the heart of Andrew Urshan and a new determination to receive all that God had for him. So on July 4, 1908, he was baptized with the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues for two hours. His ministry began that stretched over the rest of his lifetime. He wrote and published at least 15 books. His autobiography went through five editions. He ministered not only across the United States, but in the British Isles, Holland, Norway, Sweden, Russia, where there are still people who call themselves Urshanites because he brought the full message of the gospel to them. And of course, in Persia, now known as Iran. He was ordained in 1910, and in 1917, he married Mildred Harriet Hamagran, and they we're blessed with four children, Grace, Faith, Nathaniel, and Andrew David, Jr. In 1932, he affiliated with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Jesus Christ, preached around the world, brought thousands to know God through his fervent preaching 
and prayerful ministry. In 1933, he became pastor of Satisfaction Tabernacle Gospel Hall, later called Apostolic Faith Christian Church in Manhattan, New York City. He resigned in 1950 and spent the rest of his years traveling and preaching around the world. In 1950, he married Ethel May Dugas, who was his companion until his death. He made a lasting contribution to modern-day apostolic oneness Pentecostalism as we know it. A strong preacher of the name of Jesus, a lover of the message of holiness. He left this life October 16, 1967, with his last words to his son. You go to the National Conference in Tulsa. I'm going to the International Conference in the New Jerusalem. Andrew D. Urshan. Nathaniel Andrew Urshan was born in 1920 in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was the second of four children. Not long after his birth, they moved to Chicago. And for several years, his father based his ministry out of Chicago, where Brother Urshan Nathaniel became, unfortunately, a Chicago Cubs fan. After graduation from high school, he enrolled in the, in the pre-med program of Columbia University in New York. And although growing up in a home filled with prayer and the word of presence of God, he was not serious about the things of God until stricken with a serious illness in his college years. He turned his heart toward God, was healed completely, refilled with the Holy Ghost, and called to preach. He married Jean Habig in 1938, and they began evangelizing around the country. They had four children, Sharon, uh, Sharon Annette, Nathaniel Paul, and Andrew David. They preached all over the United States. I remember Brother Urshan preaching Louisiana camp year after year after year. Never, never grew old. In the years where there was no air conditioning in the tabernacle, Brother Urshan would preach an hour or an hour and a half. I got to ride on an airplane with him one time, and I asked him this question. Some, think, some told me later I was a little forward. But I told him, I said, I heard you preach at Louisiana camp when I was a teenager, and it was so hot, nothing was happening, just you talking was dead but when you gave the altar call people flooded out of the balconies and up the aisles and the power of God fell in a powerful altar service I said how did you do that he said God didn't call me to produce the results God called me to preach the word and if I preach the word God will bring the results. Nathaniel Urshan served the United Pentecostal Church in many capacities, including a district board member, assistant general superintendent, and in 1977, he was elected general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church International, a position he held until 2002. 
In 2005, Brother Urshan was gathered to his eternal reward at 84 years of age. Nathaniel A. Urshan. Receiving the Urshan Pulpit Award for 2021 on behalf of his grandfather and great-grandfather is the pastor of Tree of Life Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. A loved preacher across the Apostolic Fellowship because of his fidelity to the Word of God and because of his ability to preach anointing messages of truth. His ministry affirms the apostolic faith and follows in the footsteps of both his great-grandfather and his grandfather. He is our final preacher tonight. Would you welcome Reverend Joel Urshan? My grandfather were here today, he would say, let's give glory to God. Can we do that right now? Can we give glory to God? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, Brother Jones, Brother Coltharp, thank you both so much for this very kind award uh, that you have bestowed upon my grandfather and my great-grandfather, and uh, it is such a, a pleasure to be able to receive that, and what an honor it is, a humbling honor uh, to be here tonight and to stand in this pulpit um, and to, to be a part of such a wonderful legacy of apostolic preaching and spreading of the gospel. And uh, I'm so thankful to be surrounded by many in the Urshan family tonight. It is such an honor to be here with you and to be a part of this great pulpit conference. Um, I, uh, I just am grateful uh, and I'm humbled. I, uh, as a child, would come all the time to St. Louis uh, to see Grandma and Grandpa, to be at Grandma and Grandpa's house. And now I come to be a part of their legacy. Uh, lived on in, in so many ministries that are taking this gospel to the far-flung points of the world. And uh, it's an honor to be able to be here this evening. What a powerful message from Brother Coltharp and Sister Bollinger. Can we thank God for what we have received here tonight? Praise God. Praise God. Hey, there's a theme, there's a theme that has already, that has already been established. God is putting a love of the truth in our hearts and a commitment to preaching the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And I want to thank 
uh, Brother Jones and, and Brother Colthart, Brother and Sister Russell, God bless you. And uh, so many wonderful people of God. Brother Graham, we honor you. God bless you. And Sister Graham, I'm so glad my daughter Sophia Urshan is with me here tonight. God bless her. And uh, I've got some a Tree of Life representative, Brother Kedrick Duvall. want to give him a shout out. A wonderful young man here tonight. And uh, I'm just glad to be in the house of God. And I want to be surrendered to what the Lord is doing in this house. The blood speaks a better word. I will hide your word in my heart. I don't know if we could, I don't know if we could hear greater words than what we've heard from this worship team and corral. Can we give them a great big hand? God bless them. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm, I'm inviting your attention to the book of 1 Kings chapter 7. Uh, and It is a tall order anytime that you are a part of a conference like this because there are so many wonderful messages that go forth. And you just want to jump into the current and be a part of the flow of what is being communicated. And what a beautiful flow we are experiencing here tonight. Brother McClintock, we honor you as well, sir. God bless you. Thank you for your commitment to this a great generation of preachers. Amen. Amen. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. First Kings chapter 7 and beginning with the 13th verse. The word of the Lord says this, And King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to work all works in brass. And he came to King Solomon and wrought all his work. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning. And I want to speak to you for a few moments this evening on this subject, the spirit factor. The spirit factor. Can we lift up our voices unto the Lord and ask Him to bless His Word? God, we thank You for every individual that has gathered into this place. I thank You for Your presence that has so graciously visited us already. The Word that has been clear hallelujah and refreshing of our soul you have cleansed us through the preaching of your word and I pray tonight Lord that you will continue this work Lord I pray that you'll allow my tongue to speak forth the words of life help me I pray to be anointed of your spirit help all of us to receive your word help all of us to obey your word to be edified by the Word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. And amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. It would take a while to really do justice to the enormity of the, the excellence of Solomon's temple. There, there really is no way to, to 
fully fathom how outstanding this temple of Solomon was. It was a temple that was conceived in the heart of David, Solomon's father, who described his vision for this temple as building a house for the Lord that is exceeding magnifical. I like, I like that language, exceeding magnifical. We, we don't use that word a whole lot. But David was using language to, to help people understand. I, I want it to be bigger, better than anything you've ever seen anywhere. How can I dwell in a, in a home and yet there, in his mind, there is no home for the Lord? And yet David was unable to build a temple for the Lord because, as God would put it, his hands, his hands had been used for war. There was blood on his hands. His generation had a task that involved conquest and victory. It was, it was an arduous uphill climb for David and and David was not able to fulfill everything that was in his heart. And God said, but, but Solomon will. And I'm going to let you prepare things for him so that when he steps into his rightful place, he can build a temple for, for my, my name's sake. And Solomon did that. Solomon built a, a temple for the Lord. And it was outstanding, it was magnificent, it was exceeding magnificent. And so much so that the Bible tells of a, a famous account in which the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came from the uttermost parts of the earth simply to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And when she did, she brought a great caravan of gifts and spices. She brought many, many gifts to bestow upon this man whose wisdom had spread throughout the earth, the fame of his wisdom. And the fame of this house he had constructed for the glory of the Lord. She came from the uttermost parts of the earth. As a matter of fact, it was so noteworthy that Jesus said that that she would rise in judgment with his generation because she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And when she arrived, she famously lost her breath. There was no breath in her. It, it took her breath away. And when it did, she, she said to Solomon, what I heard was amazing but she said when I when I have come and seen how happy are thy servants or how blessed are thy servants how prosperous are thy servants servants weren't prosperous in those days the king was prosperous but the servants were not prosperous but Solomon was different than other kings his servants were blessed servants they were prosperous and she said she said the half has not been told. Now whatever half had been told was enough to compel her from the uttermost parts of the earth. But here she stands saying that 
what I heard drew me to this place. But I'm experiencing something that I did not anticipate experiencing. And I want you to know that that is how the power and the presence of the Lord operates. There is one half of this gospel that must be told. And there's another half that must be experienced. There's one half that must be declared. But but you haven't seen, heard, or felt anything until you step into it and experience the freedom that comes from repenting of your sins being baptized in his precious name, and being filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Oh, hallelujah. Glory to God. When Jesus looked upon the lilies, he he said to those listening to him, Consider these lilies, how they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed as one of these lilies. When he sought, to to make a comparison to an individual or to an event in time that that was just simply beyond imagination. He, He leapt to the idea of Solomon's temple. Look at these lilies. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these lilies. There's just no way to really describe how magnificent this temple of Solomon was and and yet there were there were points in time and there were pivotal moments along the way Solomon had a gift from God and the gift he had from God was an understanding heart he had wisdom that came from the Lord it separated him if you please from the pack if i may say it that way he had a wisdom and an understanding heart and so he was able to put his hand to certain things and apply himself to certain things and it flourished and that's what it happened that that's what happened in the construction of this temple one pivotal moment in this process was when he included a man by the name of Hiram Hiram was, there were a couple of Hirams, and they were both out of Tyre. But this Hiram was a worker in brass. And Hiram, who was uh, out of Tyre, he was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali. His father was a man of Tyre. He was a worker in brass, and he was filled with wisdom. He was filled with understanding, and he was filled with cunning. And he was able to work all manner of work in the area of brass. And he wrought all his work for King Solomon. Solomon saw something in Hiram that he didn't see in just anybody else. And he brought him from this place of Tyre, from the tribe of Naphtali, a widow's son. But his dad raised him up on the family trade. Of working brass. The Bible said he had wisdom, he had understanding, and he had cunning. Now, wisdom is a reference to his skill, to his abilities, his honed craft, this ability to take brass and do something with it. He was he was an individual who had spent his life learning. He was raised up by a very competent and capable worker in brass. He he grew up in that trade. And 
He learned the lingo and the, he learned the terms and he understand how the business operated and, and it was not something that was foreign to him. He, he was involved in the shop talk, if you please, and sitting around listening to dad talk about working in brass. He, he was very accustomed to it and he was skilled in it from the time he was a little child. He knew all there was to know about brass and, and no doubt he applied himself and continued learning of this very, very uh, amazing trade that his family had seemed to, to perfect. And, and so much so that Solomon said he has wisdom. He's filled with skills and abilities. I want him involved. Not only was he filled with wisdom, skills, and abilities, but he was filled with understanding. Understanding. This understanding is a, has to do with his experience Things that he had experienced along the way. It wasn't just a book he had read. It wasn't just some kind of a theory to this man Hiram. No, no. No, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. It, he knew what he was doing because he had done it before. He had, he had, he had met deadlines. He had been given large tasks to complete. He had a lot of work that he had uh, kind of in his, in his file, if you please. And, and, and he was full of experience, full of ability. He was wise and he was understanding. But he wasn't just wise and he wasn't just understanding. He was cunning. That's, a, that's an interesting word. It's not a word we would use in a positive connotation. In our lexicon, the way we use the word cunning, we would, we would maybe think of it as a, a sly or maybe a deceptive quality. Something that, that has to do with some sneakiness afoot. Some kind of a cunning way about us. But that's not what the Bible is referring to. The Bible is using the word cunning in the context of knowledge unawares. I'm going to say that again. It is knowledge unawares. So he's filled with wisdom, skill, ability. He has book learning. He knows what he's talking about because he has studied it. He's memorized it. He's been raised around it. He's filled with understanding because he has much experience in the way of working with brass. He knows the right temperatures and he knows when the brass is most flexible and he knows how to develop it as he begins his constructive work. But then there's this other quality and that's the quality I really want to kind of talk to you about tonight. There's a, there's a cunning that he has. And not everybody has that part of it. A lot of people are able to, to develop skills and abilities. It's, it is, it is, a, it is a, a Herculean effort, but you can take time as you are even right now applying yourself to gain more skill and ability open up the books and read what has been written learn more and don't stop learning when you finish at Urshan College keep on learning never stop learning study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth 
A lot of people have applied themselves to gain skill, and, and rightfully so. And you should, and you should continue. And you should develop understanding, experience. I, I, I can't over... I can't over-enunciate the, the, the great benefit that comes from experience. I, I, I was young and, and now am progressing in age. And I have, I have been amazed at how experience helps in ministry and in life. Once you've experienced something, and that's why God will allow you to experience certain things. Not so you can be discouraged, but so that you can gain in that area of understanding and in that area of experience. Experience gives you something that nothing else can provide to you. And so you gain experience. Get those experiences in life and tuck them away and hide them in your heart and let God lead you all the way through. But there's this third quality Hiram had. And this quality is something you can't learn in a book. This is a quality that nobody can, can teach you with a chalkboard. Nobody can teach you in an online setting. No, no, no. This isn't something that you can gain even from certain experiences. This is a knowledge you don't even know how you have it. You just do. It's just there. It's a knowledge unawares. It's, it's a certain cunning. It's a, a certain ability, a certain presence of mind. In the business world, they would call it the it factor. The it factor. They're constantly looking for people who get it. Whatever it is, your guess is as good as mine. That's the whole point. It's meant to be nebulous. It's supposed to be vague. They don't know how to put their finger on it. And neither do you. Nobody does. That's the point. You can't teach it. You can't learn it. You can't pick it up somewhere. Nobody can really explain it to you. It's, it is nebulous. It is hard to describe. There is no articulation for it. It's an it fact. It's a charisma, it's a discretion, it's an ability, a knowledge. You don't even know how you have it, you, you just do. You just know how to do it. You, you just know how to say it. I don't know where it came from. It's just there's, I have a little niche here. I, I have, a, I have a, a way of doing it that works. I don't know where it came from. It's, 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 it's an it factor. Hiram, I'll submit to you, seems to have had an it factor. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a part of his knowledge. It, it wasn't a part of his wisdom. It, it wasn't his skill set. It wasn't his life experience. It was, it was a, certain, a certain abstract ability that he had to work with his hands and to meet deadlines and to orchestrate people and to get things done and to do it the right way. And for everything to kind of flow in an orderly manner, it, it was a cunning. And he did this in the temple. He built brass. The temple had so many cubits. It was so many cubits high, so many cubits wide, so many cubits deep. There, were, there was all kinds of order to it. There, and all of the order had spiritual significance. Every little cubic inch of that temple. 
temple was in a correct measurement to the divine principles of God. And, and, and yet here Hiram comes in and, and he's not a worker of gold and he's not a worker of silver. He's a worker of brass. And when he starts applying his hand to the development of brass, he starts building pillars in the temple. And then he has lilies that are made of brass and pomegranates that are made of brass and wreaths that are made of brass and a splash here and a flash there and a flare here and a little pizzazz over there and the temple started to pop and come alive not 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 by by any kind of a, a book learning but but there was a there was a combination of of book learning and and life experience and and then there was this other factor this this cunning this this it this it factor Many people in the business world are looking for it. Ralph Lauren was known to, to look at the way people conducted themselves and, 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 and operated and the way they combined certain clothing. And, and he, would, he would study people's style. And many times he didn't even want an interview. He just would just observe the sophistication of the way they carried themselves. And, and then he would walk up and say, I want you to work for me. Uh, Bill Walsh, the legendary coach of the San Francisco 49ers, was, was scouting for for a quarterback and so they they brought the quarterback out to throw for them and when the the quarterback was throwing he brought his roommate out to run routes so that he could throw the football to him and and just so that the the scouts could see him and his work and they were watching him throw one pass after another and they were taking notes and watching all that they needed to watch the form and the and the agility and the the flexibility and as they're observing the the, the routes being run and the passes being thrown the, the the passes were being received by the receiver and 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 pretty soon they started looking more to the receiver than they were the quarterback and they were watching the routes he was running and their minds drifted from from the man throwing the football to the man that was receiving the football because they saw an it factor in him. He had a certain ability and a certain way that he did it. There was a nuance. There was an intangible that they couldn't put their finger on. And when they, when they, when they looked at it more carefully, they forgot about the quarterback completely and ended up going after Dwight Clark, who was one of the great San Francisco 49er wide receivers. This, this is the way that it worked for them. Larry Ellison, the chairman of Oracle Technologies, will often not even look at a resume or an application he'll sit down with a person and he'll talk about what he wants to talk about and he wants to see how they react and what they respond to and how they respond he's looking for something that you can't find in a book he's looking for something you can't find in a classroom he's he's looking for an it factor I want you to know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made it is important for you to understand Understand that you are made in the image of Almighty God. It is important for you to understand that before He formed you in the womb, He knew you and ordained you for His purpose. God has made you. You are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Hallelujah. 
No, no, no. You are not an accident. God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. God has a design for you. God put certain things inside of you because he has a plan for your life. Yes, you need to apply yourself. Yes, you need some life experience. But there's this other factor that separates you from the pack. There's this other outstanding quality that is so very interesting and not to be ignored. Here, hear what I'm hear what I'm telling you tonight. Some of you were patting your foot to the rhythm of music when you were one and a half year old and everybody thought it was so cute and so funny and now here you are singing and playing music to the glory of God some of you were analytical all your life you wanted to tear things up and put them back together just to satisfy your curiosity for how things worked because God put inside of you the ability to engineer and to put things together and to analyze things. Some of you were born with a larger than life personality where you just took over a room and you were a bright ray of sunshine. Others of you were more quiet, more content to stay in the background, but there was a deep desire in you to be a part of a team, to make something good happen. I want you to know that any and all that God put inside of you, he can use for his glory and I rebuke every unclean spirit that has tried to deceive you into feeling defeated or unneeded we need you we need your talent we need your ability we need your book learning we need your life experience we need all of you the things that make you uniquely you but I have not come to talk to you about an it factor I have come to talk to you about the spirit factor I have come to talk to you about the fact that God is not interested in what you bring to the table God is interested in what you bring to the altar because if you'll bring it to the altar I said, if you'll bring it to the altar and let it die. I said, let it die. Give it to God. I'm going to tell you what will happen. Yes, it'll die in that prayer room. Yes, it'll die at that altar. But it will be raised to life in the glory of his resurrection power. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You've got singing ability, give it to God and watch what he does with it. You've got an administrative edge, bring it to God and watch what he can do with it. You can play an instrument, bring it to God and watch what he can do with it. You've got wisdom and skills and abilities. You've got understanding and life experiences, bring it to God and watch what he can do with it. He will sanctify it. He will baptize it with his holy power. He will anoint it for his glory and for his purpose. Hallelujah. And it won't just be an it factor. It'll be a spirit factor. 
Brother Coltharp, thank you for saying what you said. We don't need to be like the world. We don't need to be like the world. The world is not satisfied with the world. The world is looking for the church, the true church, the real church, the real power, the real glory, real faith in Jesus Christ, real prayer and fasting, real seeking of the face of Almighty God. Hallelujah. You want to be like the world? That's because you haven't tried the Holy Ghost. I know you think you have. But if you taste and see that the Lord is good, you will never thirst again. I said you will never thirst again. You'll come to this well every time. God is spirit and is seeking those to worship him who are true worshipers, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Ah, hallelujah. I'm telling you that when the Holy Ghost gets a hold of you, he will do through you something you could never do on your own. And you will never want to try to do it on your own. I'm sorry, but I refuse to preach without the Holy Ghost. I refuse to... Brother Jones, I can't pastor without the Holy Ghost. I can't do it. I don't know how anybody could. I don't even want to try. I need the Holy Ghost. I need the Spirit of God. Ah. Hallelujah. Listen, you, you, you wouldn't want to hear me preach without the Holy Ghost. You wouldn't want to hear me speak, teach. You wouldn't want to know me without the Holy Ghost. It's real. The Spirit of God is real. Hallelujah. His Word goes forth. And when His Word goes forth, He provides the structure that is necessary. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. They were framed by the Word of God. But I want you to know that that Word was not just an uttered uh, collection of consonants and vowels. But with every word that was spoken, there was breath in that word. That breath is pneuma. Hallelujah. That's the wind of God. And the wind of God came through every word when he said, let there be light. Put your hand in front of your, in front of your mouth sometime. Maybe you have your mask on, can't feel it. But, but when you say, let there be light, there's breath in that word. I want you to know that when his word said, let the fowls multiply, his word framed it. But the spirit was in the word. And the spirit began to make blue birds blue and red birds red the spirit began to move upon the waters the spirit of God was in every word that was spoken 
When you preach the word of God, don't try to preach the word of God without the pneuma. Don't try to declare the word of God without the unction of the Holy One. Don't try to reach the needs of this generation with your intellect or with your skill. Skill is good, but it needs to be with the spirit factor. Don't try to do it with your experience. Experience is good, but always factor the Holy Ghost. Oh, hallelujah. He formed man of the dust of the ground. And then after the structure was in place, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Yes, there is order. In fact, the Apostle Paul concerning the gifts of the Spirit said, Let all things be done decently and in order. That was not his way of discouraging the operation of the gifts. That was not Paul's way of throwing a wet blanket on the gifts of the Spirit operating. That was his way of providing the necessary order in which the gifts can operate and be efficacious in their operation. We focus a lot of times on the decently and in order, but we don't focus as much on the let all things be done. We're supposed to be doing things. We're supposed to be doing all things decently and in order, yes, but let the flow of the Spirit take place. Let the pneuma, let the pneuma, let the Holy Ghost have His way. Let God breathe. Ezekiel, can these bones live? Lord, thou knowest. Prophesy to these bones. Oh, ye bones, you shall live. You're going to come together. Hear me, oh, ye dry bones. You're going to live. I will put breath in you. And the bones, when the word of the Lord came upon them, the Bible said there was a noise. Oh, hallelujah. Don't be afraid of the noise. And there was a shaking. Don't be afraid of the shaking. And the bones began to come together. Bone to his bone. Then he said prophesy to the winds. Oh four winds come. Oh winds come and blow upon these bones that they may live. And the wind of God. Can I tell you it's the same wind that blew on the day of Pentecost. Can I tell you it's the same wind that came into Adam's lungs. And I tell you, it's the same wind, hallelujah, that separated the Red Sea and caused them to walk through on dry ground. Oh, wind of God, blow upon these bones. We must have a move of the Spirit. I was in Indiana. I was about 20 years old, and I received a phone call. And on the other end of the line, I was co-pastoring with my father at the time. And on the other end of the line, a lady said, is this Joel Urshan? I said, yes, it is. She said, uh, oh, good. She said, we want to get in touch with you. We want to ask if you could come preach for us. I said, oh, I'd be honored. She said, um, okay. She said, we're in Greenfield, Indiana. Well, Greenfield was 10 minutes from where I lived in Kokomo, Indiana. And I said, really? And I thought, okay, I knew the, a couple churches in that area, some apostolic churches. And I, 
I mentioned the pastor's name. Or you said, are you, I said, are you with Pastor so-and-so? She said, no, no. She said, we are uh, Hillsdale United Methodist Church. I said, oh, okay. And she said, would you be interested in coming? I said, absolutely. Absolutely. We met with them. And, 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 and she said, we'd like you to, to connect with us and we'll plan out the tent meeting. And she said, now we're going to have lots of denominations there. We're going we're to bring all kinds of denominations together for this. And I'm just listening and, and they're talking amongst themselves and I'm a part of the meeting. And she said, they, they said, now, now uh, who could we get to lead worship? Does anybody know of a good praise team? I said, we've got a praise team that could do that for you. And they, they said, okay, good, good. So we'll have, we'll have uh, Brother Joel's praise team there. And they said, now who should, we, who should we have do the altar service? I said, I can take care of the altar service for you. They said, okay, Brother Joel, take care of the altar service. I said, all right, this, this is looking good. We started having meetings with our leaders and said, listen, we're going to have, we're going to believe God for an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. We're going to come together under this tent, and we're going to have several denominations who may never come together again, and we're going to ask God to pour out His Spirit upon this meeting. So we, we had some altar work training and, and, and just really went into detail of how we're going to conduct ourselves and, and talked with the praise team, talked with the altar team, and, and, and trained them, and we go into this meeting. The first night, there was three nights, the first night I preached a message about the, the peace of God. And, uh, and, and the Lord blessed, the Lord blessed. And the next night I preached about the liberty of God. And the Lord blessed then too. The third night I was sitting there getting ready to preach and the Lord spoke to me and said, Joel, tonight you got to let it all out. You don't get to hold anything back. You've got to tell them exactly what the truth of the gospel is. Now, there were Catholics, there were Nazarenes, there were Church of Christ, there were Mennonites, there were Charismatics, there were Assembly of God, there were Methodists. It was a Methodist church. And so I got up and I said, Lord, I'm in your hands. They may run me out of here, I don't know. But I preached on the mighty God in Christ. And I preached on repentance from sin. And I preached on baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And I preached on the receiving of the gift of the Holy Ghost evidenced by speaking in other tongues. And I preached that the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. I didn't know I didn't know if they were going to I didn't know if they were going to attack me. I didn't know what was going to happen. That's not what happened. They started standing to their feet, lifting up their hands, receiving the word of God. <laughs> Hallelujah. And I thought, Lord, you've got to do something here. You've got to do something. I, nobody knew what to do. No, I was 20 years old and everybody was out there. No, nobody knew what to do next. And I said, Lord, you've got to do something. I saw a young man, teenager, about three-fourths of the way back. He was weeping. His, his tear, tears were streaming down his face. And, 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 and I, I saw him standing back there and I thought, that's the guy. I went back to him. I laid hands on him and prayed for him and nothing happened. And I turned around and came up to the front and I, I said, Lord, you've got you've to break this open in Jesus' name. Lord, you just got to do this work right now. And he was standing next to Sister Willis. Now, you've got to know Sister Willis. 
Sister Willis is a precious saint of God, and she goes into the prisons and preaches and sings, and she carries her guitar with her when she would go sing and preach in the prisons. And her guitar, she had Jesus in glitter above the strings, and she had Acts 2.38 and glitter under the strings. Sister Willis, didn't, she didn't play no games. And when that young man started weeping and she saw me pray for him, she grabbed him by the hand and danced him to the front of that tent. I turned around and thought, oh, no, no, Sister Willis is going to scare everybody away. That's not what happened. They followed behind her in single file line. They didn't know what to do, but they knew I need this. I don't know how to explain this, but I need it. There's an it factor here. There's a, there's a spirit moving, and I, I don't know how to respond to it. My God, my God. Brother Graham, I hadn't experienced that night. I had never experienced before. In that moment when faith was so high, I began to lay hands on people. And as I began to lay hands on them, one after another, they received the Holy Ghost. And I had a knowledge. God put in me a knowledge that if I could put my hand on their head, they would receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And deacons got the Holy Ghost. And the youth pastor got the Holy Ghost. And one after another, we're receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'm going to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. We've got to have a move of the Holy Ghost. COVID doesn't scare the Holy Ghost. National unrest does not scare the Holy Ghost. The divisiveness in our nation does not scare the Holy Ghost. We were made for this moment. We are here for this hour. We've got the spirit factor. We've got something operating in us that the world needs to see. Don't try to put your finger on it. Don't try to figure it out. You can't figure it out, and the world can't figure it out. Just let it flow and let it go. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Hallelujah. We don't know how to explain it, but we're going to put Joseph over this project. Joseph is going to be ruler over this project because there is none so discreet and wise as he. Somebody go get Daniel in whom is an excellent spirit. They looked upon Stephen and he had like it was the face of an angel. And they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spake. Hallelujah. No, no. We've got to have the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. I'm not, I don't want what the world has, Dr. Colthorpe. I don't want it. I want, I want the real thing. Hallelujah. 
that man that was on this screen, Andrew David Urshan. I have the pleasure and the benefit of being four generations deep from what he gave to us. But he did not have that luxury. He stepped into America looking for an American dream, not sure what he was going to find. He walked into that Pentecostal holiness mission and he said when he walked in, it was crazy what he was seeing. None of it made any sense. It was like wildfire had erupted in that place and people from all backgrounds were speaking in funny foreign languages that didn't make any sense. He did think they were crazy and he was uneasy about it. Until the man standing next to him who was a Chicago native lifted up his hands and began to speak in a beautiful unknown tongue the language wherein my great-grandfather was born. He understood every word. He looked at this man who in, in an unknown tongue to him, but in my great-grandfather's Syriac language, he was saying, Come, Jehovah, I am yours, Jehovah. Jehovah, I am yours. Take me, Jehovah. Fill me, Jehovah. I belong unto you, Jehovah. He heard him saying it. He heard it with his ears. And he walked out of that place saying, I don't know how to put my finger on it. But there's something in there that's different. There's something in that place. He went to his Assyrian mission and preached to the young men that were part of the Assyrian mission. And he said to them, listen, listen, we're going to tarry for the Holy Ghost. We're going to seek God to baptize us with the Holy Ghost. But he purposely never said anything to them about speaking with tongues. Because he wanted to be sure that it was real. And as they began to seek for the Holy Ghost, one by one, they began to receive the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues as the spirit gave the utterance he was the pastor and he was the last one to receive the Holy Ghost it's a spirit factor it's a spirit factor don't you be ashamed of it hallelujah don't you be ashamed of it when people walk in let them see apostolic Pentecost when they walk in let them feel the Holy Ghost and fire when they walk in you praise God like you love to praise God don't hold back don't be ashamed of it it's the real thing it's the spirit factor it's the Holy Ghost and power yes it is Yes, it is. Uh, oh, hallelujah. I'm coming to a close. I'm coming to a close. But hear me. We, this is a preaching conference, a pulpit conference. Bishop Jones, thank you so much for your vision to see preachers multiplied. Hallelujah. The great commission fulfilled, preaching the gospel to every creature. When I was starting preaching, I was terrified to stand in front of people. And the truth is, I still am. I can't do it without the Holy Ghost. I was 10 years old, and I had, I had stepped out of myself to start worshiping God in, in, in song and in, not, not in front of people. Lord have mercy. I couldn't sing in front of anybody. Terribly afraid of, of people's judgment of me. And I, but, I, but I would be down, down on the front row, and when the worship of God would begin, I would worship Him with all my heart. 
Maybe I was little enough. I didn't think people could see me. But I danced before the Lord. And I worshipped Him. And I had a ministry. And I wanted to preach. God had put an understanding, a revelation of His oneness in my heart. And I wanted to preach it. But I couldn't put, I couldn't put sentences together. I, I take five weeks to put together five pages of notes. And it takes me five minutes to deliver. And I was terrified. I stumbled and bumbled. And my father would take me to places to preach with him. He would preach to the congregation and I would preach to the young people. My father would stand up. The pastor would arrange for the young people to go off into the chapel and I would preach there. My father would preach in the pulpit. My father would, they would announce that the young people are going and Brother Joel's going to preach. We'd all leave. Then they'd turn the pulpit over to my father and he'd stand up and make a few remarks and thank the pastor and read his text and announce his title and about that time here we were marching right back in because we were done I didn't know how to preach I, I was scared of people and terrified of young people and I, I didn't know what I was doing but I had a heart for God it was in Huntington, West Virginia Brother Edwin Harper had me preaching to his young people and I stood up behind the pulpit that day and I read my text and I announced my title and I was getting ready to go through another grueling experience of being ashamed and embarrassed and feeling like a failure. And then all of a sudden something touched me. And I knew I, I had felt that before. Never in preaching, but in worship. When I would dance before the Lord, when I would worship His name, He would visit me and I would commune with Him. And there as I stood in that pulpit, I was 14 years old now. And while I was reading my text and my title, and I opened my mouth to declare His word, that same presence of God that came upon me in praise was now with me in preaching. And I realized I don't even have to preach. All I have to do is praise all I've got to do is worship God to you. So, no, I'm not an orator. No, no, I don't. I, I, I can't do it. I don't have all the wisdom and all the understanding. What I, but, I, but I do have a connection to the Holy Ghost. And that's all I need. So I'm just going to worship Him to you. He's worthy. He's holy. He's mighty. He'll save to the uttermost. He'll deliver you from any addiction. Hallelujah. His Spirit has the power. He wants to use you. He wants to anoint you. He wants to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Ah, do you feel it? Do you feel it? That's the Holy Ghost coming upon you. Do you feel Feel them. That's the presence of God filling this Hey, I want somebody to run to the front of this house and say, if I don't have anything else, I want the power of the Holy Ghost alive in me. Not by might, not by my power, but by His Spirit, saith the Lord. By his spirit, saith the Lord. Shayalalabata.
on, that's it. Come on, that's it. Press into it right now. There is an anointing of God that's coming upon you right now. That's it. Press into it in the name of Jesus. Bring it to the altar. Give it to God right now. Give Him all your skill. Give Him all your ability. Give Him all that ability you have. All of those talents. Give it to God. Give it to God.